The scripture reading this morning is 2 Kings chapter 5. 2 Kings chapter 5. And while you're turning there, let me just say thank you for your prayers for me. I'm back to normal, uh, if that's a good thing. I'm happy to say I've also tested negative, so I am back and glad to be back. Second uh, Kings chapter 5 is our reading this morning. Listen, this is God's word. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him Yahweh had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians, on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of Yahweh his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, Wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him, and he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. 
But he said, as Yahweh lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Then Naaman said, if not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. For from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but Yahweh. In this matter, may Yahweh pardon your servant when my master goes into the house of Rimon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimon. When I bow myself in the house of Rimon, the Lord Yahweh, pardon your servant in this matter. He said to him, go in peace. But when Naaman had gone from him a short distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, See, my master has spared this Naaman the Syrian in not accepting from his hand what he brought. As Yahweh lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi followed Naaman. And when Naaman saw someone running after him, he got down from his chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? And he said, All is well. My master has sent me to say, There have just now come to me from the hill country of Ephraim two young men of the sons of the prophets. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothing. And Naaman said, please be pleased to accept two talents. And he urged him and tied up two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of clothing and laid them on two of his servants. And they carried them before Gehazi. And when he came to the hill, he took them from their hand and put them in the house, and he sent the men away, and they departed. He went in and stood before his master. And Elisha said to him, Where have you been, Gehazi? And he said, Your servant went nowhere. But he said to him, Did not my heart go when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Was it a time to accept money and garments olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants. Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence a leper like snow. Every time I read Luke 4, I wonder to myself, What would I have to say from this pulpit to make you so angry with me that you would drag me from from here out into the middle of County Line Road that I might be run over by a truck? Rather than go verse by verse through this story and running the risk of explaining away every line, I want to highlight a few features and answer a few questions. Why does Jesus use this story as an illustration in his first sermon in his hometown? And why does his audience, upon hearing this story, want to throw Jesus off a cliff? Well, this morning I want to convince you that the story of Naaman the Syrian is one of the greatest missionary stories in the entire Old Testament. And I want to also convince you that that puzzling little section in the middle of the story about two mule loads of dirt 
is actually key to understanding the whole story. There are events going on in the world right now, things that have been brought to our attention in the news that uh, help us, or at least help me, lay some of the groundwork, a framework for this story. Uh, There are benefits of the balloons that have been flying over and and those unidentified objects that have been shot down, Uh, one of which is that now more Americans than ever before know where and how close Canada is. And of course, on the other side of things, in the devastating earthquake in Syria and in Turkey, that probably has caused us to look at our maps and to recognize Syria shares a border with Israel and to realize how close and how small uh, the world really is and how close some of these countries really are. And I say that all because most of us don't really think about the fact that uh, there's the two tribes of Judah in the south with Jerusalem, their capital, they share a border with the 10 tribes with Samaria as the capital of Israel. And just to the north and to the east is Syria and its capital, Damascus. And that little geography lesson is going to come in handy today and for the next few uh, weeks as we go through, uh, continue through the story of 2 Kings. But with that in the background, and I was so tempted to have seven points in my sermon so I could say we would dip seven times into the story, but we're not going to do that. But I do want us to dip into the story a few times. Notice first how it's driven by its characters. And the characters are shaped in so many ways by their relationships to each other. This is easily the longest and the most developed narrative in all the uh, stories of the lives and times of Elijah and Elisha. And the story is driven by his characters and in their uh, relationships to each other. And in this chapter, nearly always defined in terms of masters and servants. In fact, in this chapter, the word master or mistress and servant used 18 times. And the relationships, even when the words are not used, the relationships are assumed all the way through. So if it's not master, sometimes it's lord. And it's always clear that there's a connection and a master-servant kind of relationship. And first we notice, of course, we meet Naaman. And we learn a great deal about him in just one verse. He's a commander of the Syrian army. He's a great man with his master, Uh, We learn later, literally, he's the king's right-hand man. He's highly favored by the king in large measure, no doubt, uh, because of his military success. He is a mighty man of valor, a technical term. And then we hear the ominous words, a leper. And for whatever we think we know or don't know about leprosy in the Bible, uh, we want to be careful that we don't overdiagnose Naaman uh, from a distance. We don't know a great deal about what his leprosy was like, but we can say this. It's a skin disease. It is not, in his case, debilitating. He's a pretty highly functioning leper. He's a successful general. Yet it's enough of a problem that he's willing to go to some great lengths to be healed from it. 
And then judging by what we are told about his cure and what we learn from Gehazi at the end of the story who inherits his leprosy, we can at least say this, it's cosmetic, it's visible, it's aesthetic. His skin is white, probably scaly. There's an ick factor. But Naaman, mighty man of valor, is still servant to the king of Syria. He's beholden to him. And then there's this little Jewish girl. And before we rush to normalize or even glamorize her and her situation, notice she's a prisoner of war. She is part of the spoils of the property seized in a successful raid by Naaman in Israel. She is not named. There's no word of her parents or of the trauma she would have gone through or needed to endure in being taken from her home, from her homeland to become servant of the second most powerful man in Syria, or at least of his wife. It's just a little passing comment, but the Syrians on one of the raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she must have been one of the best of the little girls in Israel because she was given to work in the service of Naaman's wife. But again, before you get too far down this road, think about this. She would, by today's standards, be defined as a victim of human trafficking. But notice, she preaches the gospel of the good news to Mrs. Naaman. I know a guy. And the story just goes on from there, takes off really. Naaman goes to the king, the king sends a, uh, writes a letter, and he sends the letter and gifts by Naaman's hand to the king of Israel, and away the story goes. Still thinking about masters and servants, Naaman has an entourage of servants. They are riding horses and chariots and mules, and there's this impressive parade carrying gifts and gold to pay for the medical bill. And these servants are going to play a role later in persuading their enraged master to heed the man of God's word and to bathe in the Jordan. Elisha has servants. He's a master. He sends one of his servants to answer his doorbell and to speak to Naaman rather than even to honor him with an audience. And then, of course, there's Gehazi, Elisha's right-hand man. We've met him before, and it turns out he has his own servants, or servants are given to him to help him carry the loot uh, that he then goes on to hide in a story that might have little echoes of Achan. But there at the center of the story is Naaman, the mighty general, second in command to the king, honored, victorious, a mighty man of valor, furious that Elisha won't even answer the door. That Elisha won't honor him, won't see him, won't wave his hands over him or call on the name of his God uh, or work his magic to heal him. But once healed, the same man, healed and humbled, stands before Elisha who does then see him. And he refers to himself as Elisha's servant 
no less than five times in four verses. It's a story driven by characters, nearly always defined as in the terms of their relationships to each other as masters or servants. Well, notice some of the events that happen in this story. When uh, Naaman arrives in Israel, stands before the king of Israel with a letter in his hand from the king of Syria, we finally learn its contents. And notice there seems to be an assumption on the part of the king of Syria, and it's a good assumption to make, but it turns out to be wrong, but it's a good assumption. He assumes that the king of Israel enjoys some kind of working relationship with this prophet, this guy who can heal. And he assumes that the king can, at his bidding, summon that prophet or maybe even himself, heal Naaman. He could do what the gods of the Syrians apparently could not do. Of course, the unnamed king of Israel should have known to pick up the phone and give Elisha a call, but he does not. And the opening line he gives upon reading the letter stands out, doesn't it? Am I God to kill and to make alive? That's not bad theology right there. The power of life and death belong to God. But that's as far as his theology goes. You see, he sees this as a challenge, as a pretext, a challenge he can't meet, as an incitement to war. And after all, king of Syria has had some success, apparently, within the borders of Israel. And Elisha's involvement in the story comes at his own initiative. The king doesn't reach out to him. The king just tears his clothes and throws up his hands. He's helpless. And Elisha comes along and he gives this line that's both a rebuke and a lifeline. Why have you torn your clothes? Send them to me. Send him to me, let him come to me, let him know that there is a prophet in Israel, that is, there's a God in Israel. And of course, when Naaman shows up at Elisha's house, the interaction is is memorable as well. You can imagine this impressive display rolling down Elisha's streets, everyone hearing the racket and poking their heads out the windows, all those poor seminary students, remember, in the a school of the prophets looking around and thinking, look at that, all stopping in front of Elisha's house. A leper bearing gifts. And just so you have some sense of scale and some sense of context, back in 1 Kings chapter 16, Ahab's father, Omri. So remember King Ahab, his father, King Omri, who establishes the dynasty, who sets the capital in Damascus, or in, uh, in, the, um, in Samaria, rather, buys the hill and the town of Samaria for two talents of silver. Omri paid two talents of silver for the hill and the city. Naaman rolls into town with five times that amount in silver, plus gold, plus clothes. And again, I picture these Poor seminarians and their wives looking out the window going, oh man, all this for us? And Elisha is unmoved and unimpressed. He doesn't even answer the door. Sends out a servant, tells the messenger servant to 
give the prescription, go dip in the river Jordan seven times. Naaman is furious. Furious because he's been dissed, but furious because the solution seems so improbable and so humiliating. He launches into his Syria first speech. I thought he'd at least come out to see me, to face me, to wave his hands over me, to call on the name of his God. We have our own rivers. They're better. They're cleaner. And of course, you want to ask the question, well, then why didn't you? And you probably did, and were not clean, cleansed there. His servants calm him down. They remind him, Elisha had actually said a good word. Go wash and be clean. And then the events of the second half of the story are events of surprises and reversals. Even from the start of the story, the little slave girl we never hear from again becomes a gospel preacher. I know a guy. The king of Israel turns out to be incompetent and uh, he does not know Yahweh, the God of Israel. But of course, the two greatest reversals in the story are in those two acts of salvation and judgment. Naaman, the foreign leper, obeys the word of the Lord, dips in the Jordan River. His skin is made whole, as we might say, soft as a baby's bottom. And Gehazi, the servant and prophet of Elisha, is judged for his sins. What are his sins? Well, they are at least greed and deception. But more than that, they undermine the work of Elisha. And more to the point, they undermine and malign the work and the name of Yahweh. When Elisha says, is this really the time to gain money for yourselves that you can go on and buy all these good things that God himself has promised to those who believe? Is this really the time to confuse this man and let him think as he came thinking that the God of Israel is a God who's transactional, that you can earn or buy or pay for his free grace? And so the leprosy of Naaman clings to Gehazi and to his descendants forever. The story begins with a man who's a leper and it ends with a man who's a leper. And the leper is made whole and the whole is made leprous. Well, that brings us to the heart or the middle of the story that I've been promising you is actually the key to understanding the story, the bags of dirt. The exchange between Naaman and Elisha in verses 15 to 19 explains or helps us understand and put this into context this entire story. The once proud and angry, leprous Naaman stands whole and humbled before Elisha who now finally comes out of his house. And Naaman begins with a confession of faith. And it's remarkable. Behold, now I know there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. 
And out of the abundance of gratitude, he wants to offer gifts. And Elisha responds with oath-like words we hear as the first words of Elijah the prophet when we first met him. As Yahweh lives before whom I stand. And you might imagine this little exchange in, uh, between Elisha and Naaman at this point as part of some kind of ancient Near East custom of being overly polite and then refusing and then, uh, and then being offered and then refusing and finally ultimately taking uh, gifts as expressions of thanks. They go back and forth for a bit, but Elisha is unmoved. He wants nothing to do with creating any confusion in Naaman's mind that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is a powerful God who could heal a powerful man who was powerless to heal himself. And Yahweh, the God of Israel, is a gracious and compassionate God who cannot be bought. This is not a transactional moment. Yahweh, the God who healed Naaman, both as an act of mercy and kindness to him and as a demonstration of his superior power over all the other gods of the earth and over the God of Syria, is not for sale. And then we get to that puzzling response. Well, if you won't take my gifts, let me at least take a couple of bags of dirt. For from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but Yahweh. And then along with the request for dirt, he adds this request for forgiveness in advance. You see, as part of his occupational responsibilities, he is to accompany the king of Syria when they enter into the temple of their god, Rimon, to sacrifice. My sense, I can't prove this, but my sense is these trips are more than just daily routines or daily offerings and sacrifices. I suspect they're more likely religious and military moments devotion and invocation. This is going to be something of an occasion when the king and the general show up at the temple, offering sacrifices to their gods in hopes of political and military success, giving thanks for past successes, appeasing their God, appealing to him to grant them continued prosperity. One of the great ironies of this story is while Naaman is asking for forgiveness, knowing he's going to have to go back into the temple, probably to give sacrifices to a God they think of giving the military successes, we know, we know from verse one, Naaman is a mighty man of valor. He is a great general. He's in favor with the king because of his success. The little girl works in his household. The little girl who tells him the gospel news but all of that success, Naaman has experienced for the nation of Syria over Israel because the success was given to him by Yahweh, the God of Israel. And that right there is yet another great reversal in the story, the success of Naaman in Syria over Israel that results in the little girl's presence in the house and the king of Israel's fear that this is some kind of setup for an act of war. All this is the working of the God of Israel who is judging his people, granting to their enemy success 
to the point of having these successful raids where they can steal a small child and bring her back with probably many others. And now Naaman stands in front of the prophet of the Lord and he says, uh, ordinarily we would attribute our military success to our right relationship with Rimon, our God. And the king is going to want me to accompany him and, uh, and, and we're going to go to satisfy our God, or we're going to give him thanks for our success and, 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 and pray that he would continue to prosper us as a nation in battle. But from now on, when I go with the king into the temple, I'm going to be doing it with my fingers crossed. Because I am going to worship Yahweh, the God of Israel, alone. Forgive me in advance, and why don't you give me a couple of bags of dirt? And surely, Naaman does not think he's going to use that dirt to grow better potatoes or tomatoes. It is not, as someone uh, wondered, a way of making some kind of mud bath to keep the leprosy from coming back. Let me take you back a few chapters to 1 Kings chapter 20. 1 Kings chapter 20, there we read of Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, who once mustered his troops, came down to Samaria, to do battle against the king of Israel, Ahab. And through the intervention of the prophet of the Lord, unnamed there, Ahab rallies his troops, and he soundly defeats Ben-Hadad, king of Syria. This is not one of the successful raids of the Syrians. And he defeats him in the hill country surrounding Samaria. And the Syrians, tails between their legs, go back to their city and say, their gods are gods of the hills. And so they were stronger than we. But let us fight them again in the plain. Surely we will be stronger than they. So spring rolls around, time of war, they rallied, they come at Israel again, this time to fight them in the plains. And the prophet of the Lord says this to the people of Israel, thus says Yahweh. Because the Syrians have said, Yahweh is a God of the hills. He's not a God of the valleys. Therefore, Yahweh says, I will give them all into your hand. You shall know that I am Yahweh. You see, Naaman is not the only person who believes gods are regional or national or localized or territorial. In fact, it's widely believed every nation's God helps them in battle. You could just think back to the story of taking the ark of God, taking the presence of God to go battle the Philistines. Every nation believes its gods will help them in battle or with their crops or by sending rain and, and all the like. And it's not hard to understand why Naaman believes Yahweh's power is either concentrated or even limited to geographical boundaries of Israel. So, he wants some dirt. He probably wants to use that dirt to build an altar, to create a little patch of ground on which he can stand to worship Yahweh, who he says he will worship alone. Lots of people want to criticize Naaman at this point and say, well, what a rudimentary or underdeveloped theology. 
What a rudimentary or underdeveloped doctrine of God that he would believe that God were limited, even if there's God who did great things for him in healing him, but that he would believe that he needed to take some dirt with him. Notice, Elisha says, go in peace. Go in peace. I think Elisha is simply entrusting him to the good graces of God. Doesn't spend a lot of time correcting him to say, no, actually, you don't need dirt. Yahweh is everywhere. Because I think the entire story functions as both an encouragement and a rebuke to subsequent generations of Israelites, particularly in the land of exile or coming back from exile. A nation in exile is going to need to know Yahweh is not tied to their land. A nation in exile is going to know and to be rebuked in some way that a foreigner, a Syrian, this man, this Syrian, found Yahweh and committed himself to worshiping Yahweh alone. The very opposite of what they did. They wanted to find joy and delight in the things of this earth. And so that reversal of the foreigner getting healed and the man who stands next to the man of God losing it all and having one healed and the other who was whole made leprous is a powerful story for people who are in a land in exile. A story of a man taking a couple of barrels of dirt with him so that he can worship the Lord alone is going to be powerful. Well, finally, let me get you to Luke chapter 4. And this will help us pull it all together. In his first recorded sermon in his hometown synagogue, Jesus reads from Isaiah 61. A passage about, by the way, the servant of the Lord. The spirit of Yahweh is upon me. Remember the spirit of Yahweh who rested on Elijah and then was transferred to Elisha. The spirit of Yahweh is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he sat down and he said, this day, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And the congregation spoke well of him. And they were amazed at what Luke says are his gracious words or his words of grace. Why? Why are they so amazed? Why are they amazed at gracious words? Well, it's because at least in part, Jesus does not finish the couplet of Isaiah 61. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of judgment of our God. He leaves that last line off. And then Jesus goes on and says this. There were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, but he was sent to none of them, only to Zarephath, in the land of Sidon, a.k.a. not Israel. There were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, but none of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. And then we read this. 
Luke tells us, when they heard these words, they were filled with wrath. They rose up, drove him out of the town, and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so they could throw him off a cliff. But passing through their midst, he went on his way. And you need to ask this question. Why does this crowd go from praise and adoration? Why are they so amazed at his gracious words and then turn to homicidal rage moments later because they heard the story of Naaman and the widow of Zarephath? Jesus was reminding them not only was the widow of Zarephath fed, but the widows of Israel were passed by. And not only was Naaman the leper from Syria healed, but lepers in Israel were passed over. And clearly, the stories of Elijah and Elisha come in the context of a national kind of rejection of Yahweh that are going to lead to exile. And so these stories of a widow and of a great general coming from outside, being healed, are God's little way of saying, remember that promise to Abraham that I'm going to make you into a great nation and through you all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. These two receive that blessing and they are blessed to the exclusion of God's people who should have been the recipients of God's promise. And that's what makes the crowd in Nazareth so angry. If I could paraphrase the words of another, it was never easy for the Israelites who had been called upon to extinguish or at least expel the nations and then who experienced such relentless judgment at the hands of the nations to think of them as the recipients of divine mercy. And here comes Jesus to announce And to affirm the salvation of God, the kingdom of God he is bringing, is not limited to a little geographical patch. Not to one nation. It's to go to all nations. It's to go to people like Naaman the Syrian, who should be hated because of his success against God's people, but who receives God's mercy and God's healing. Because salvation belongs not to one little ethnic group, but to all who see their need and who come to the one who promises healing and wholeness. And judgment comes not just to those who are outside the land, but to any and to all who know him and reject him. Or in the words of the Apostle Paul, as you have already heard today, it is in Christ we have cleansing and reconciliation and new life because of the transfer. The transfer of leprosy in this story is a kind of picture of what we get in him. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake he made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If you want to insert yourself into this story, if there's a character in this story with whom you especially resonate, let me suggest these two options. You might be Naaman. 
That is, you might be sitting here today full of leprosy on the inside. Still unclean. I would say to you, go to the one who can heal you. Humble yourself. It's that simple, that easy. Listen to the word of God as he invites you to him to be made whole. Or you might resonate or identify with the little girl. The one who said, I know a guy. And we are not told this, but there's some subtext here that you should probably think about. This little girl somehow knew about Elisha. And this little girl knew about her mistress's husband's condition. And however young she is, or however simple her message is, as we're told it, she must have said this so convincingly and so persuasively that Mrs. Naaman says, I gotta do something about this. And she convinces her husband, who convinces the king to take all this bundle of booty and go down to be healed. So Naaman is healed of his disease and dedicates himself to the worship of the God who heals him. In part, because a little girl says, I know a guy. So if you're Naaman today, go. And if you're the little girl, tell. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these delightful stories in the Old Testament, the ones that so easily point us to Jesus Christ and what he came to do. Thank you that your gospel knows no boundaries or borders. Lord, for those here who might yet be apart from Christ, who have hearts filled with sin, who are too proud to do the simple thing, Lord, break down that pride. Let them know. This is a good word. It's a great word. Go and be cleansed. And then for the rest of us, Father, we ask that you'd give us a simple message of a simple girl who said, I know a guy. Lord, prosper your work through us and in us. We pray it all in Jesus' name and all God's people say, amen.